Well, good morning. What we want to do this morning is to have a look at Romans chapters 9 to 11. Now, at first sight, this is not particularly easy material. And it's about Paul's feelings, his theology, if you like, about, about Israel and the, the ultimate salvation of Israel. But to start off with, I want to just look at the love of Paul for Israel. And don't forget, the Jewish people had persecuted him, something chronic, and it was eventually them that led to, to his death. And don't forget, on a psychological level, Paul had quit Judaism. And normally when you quit a whole system, uh, like Judaism, for example, you kind of go the other way. You want no more to do with it. It's like quitting smoking. Like You don't want to, to be around the smokers or, or, or wear ashtrays or anything. The whole thing is, is you don't want anything to do with it. And it's the same with, with Paul's quitting, I think, of Judaism. And so it's all the more surprising, it seems to me, that he has such an amazing love for his people. So Romans 9, verse 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. It's like he's going out of his, his way to say, look, I'm telling you the truth in what I'm now going to say. A big statement is now coming up. And the Holy Spirit supports my conscience in telling you that this is absolutely true what I'm now going to say. So there's going to be a, a big thing coming up now. Two and three. I have great heaviness, continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brother, my kinsman according to the flesh. He could wish that he was accursed from Christ so that they might be saved. And he must surely be alluding here to, to Moses, who went up to the mountain, went up uh, to the top of Sinai and, and met God on the mountain and pleaded for Israel. And he says, this is in Exodus 32, if they've sinned, well, then take my name, Moses says, I pray you, out of the book that you have written. And that's an allusion, it seems, to the book of life. The idea that there is a, a record that God keeps in this uh, image, a book of life, with all, all the names in it of all those who shall be saved. And Moses says, please take my name out of that so that they might go into the land, so that they might be saved. Now, sometimes we think about the Lord Jesus and we, we remember him and we think inevitably, I suppose, that, well, he was the son of God and I'm just ordinary. And, uh, well, he, okay, he did that and I, well, I'm just a sinner who's just throwing myself upon his grace. And that's, I suppose, understandable, but I'm not sure, given that the Lord Jesus was our representative and had our nature, that we should let ourselves off quite so lightly. But when it comes to men like Moses and Paul, we don't have that excuse. So then, Moses was willing to give up his place in the kingdom of God so that they might go in, so that Israel might go in. And God answers him, well, not so, Moses. He who has sinned against me, he will I take out of my book. So God's saying, look, I, I don't operate on the principle of substitution. And that's why I think Paul had learned that when he, he says, I could wish, I could wish that I were accursed so that they might be saved. 
Now, that is absolutely an amazing level of love. It's one thing, I think, to give your life, to say, well, if it's my life or theirs, take mine. That's one thing. But to say, I will give my eternal life, especially if you're a man like Paul or Moses who really did appreciate and understand what was going on. That they appreciated the eternity of that life. They knew the good news of God's kingdom. And yet both of them could say, well, I could honestly wish that I were not there, take me out of there, so that others might go in. Now that to me is the height of love. And there we are, wanting to be challenged this morning, really to to the life of love. Wanting to see, in human terms, maybe some inspiration. We look at the cross of Christ and we think, wow, that is his love for me. But as I say, the brakes seem to come on all too quickly with us saying, yeah, well, that was him. And I'm just just ordinary man with all my dysfunction and weakness. And as I say, I think that that's letting ourselves off far too lightly. But here we are, up front, faced with Paul and Moses being willing to give their place in God's kingdom, their place in eternity, for others. Now, that is a height of love. I really think that if you, if you could you know, mark Moses on a score out of 10 for, for spirituality, he's right up the top of his graph there, 10 out of 10. Uh, and the same here with Paul. And that's why he says, look here, I'm telling you the truth, and the Holy Spirit will back me up on this, that really this is how I feel. Now that's an amazing level of love. And so, of course, it comes right back to you you and me. What is our love, particularly for the weak, for the lost, for the Israel in in our lives? Are we impatient, think we're better than, than other people? Or are we really sorrowing for the lost? I have continual sorrow in my heart, Paul could say. Now, is that how you feel about the guys that you mix with? Maybe your unbelieving family members? Is that how we feel? You remember Jeremiah, he's another one like, like that. He says, if you guys don't repent of, of your pride, my soul shall weep in secret places. In other words, I'll go and lock myself in the toilet and just weep for you guys. If only you would not be so arrogant. And if only you would humble yourselves. Now, is this how we feel? I really suggest to us that we should be praying every day for the people who are lost with whom we are in contact. That God will give us an opening, maybe a turn of conversation, an event that happens, an opportunity, so that we might be able to witness to them. And if we have those lists of people that we're praying for, I do really believe that God will answer that kind of prayer. That that is His will. Our will, in that case, is aligned with his, and surely he will hear us. So then, he says again, chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. It was his heart's desire that others should be saved. But just notice the context there. The chapter break is unfortunate, but before that, in chapter 9, he's been talking about how the Old Testament itself says that basically Israel has not made it. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 27, Isaiah cries concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant shall be saved. He goes on, the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, but Israel which followed after the Lord of righteousness has not attained to it. 
Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith. And so, he's just been saying there that the Old Testament itself witnesses that Israel has not made it. And yet he says, I'm praying that Israel might be saved. So then, there is an element in prayer whereby we can not argue with God, but where we can accept God's statements and yet still pray that he might rethink. It's the same really with Moses, isn't it? God says, you know, I will destroy Israel and make of you, Moses, a greater nation, uh, a great nation. And he says, no, no, don't do that. And God sort of says, okay. Uh, it, it, it all sounds so simple that, yeah, Moses just said that to God and God said, yeah, okay. But, I mean, there was a huge amount of, of fasting, of prayer by Moses. And don't forget, he was climbing this mountain each time to talk to God. Th- these were not the feelings of a moment just a flash of emotion in, in Moses. This was a carefully thought out desire on, on his part. So then, although God has said, as we just read, that Israel has not made it and he's turned to the Gentiles, yet Paul says, my prayer of my heart is that, that Israel might be saved. Now, if that was his prayer for people of whom God had said, they have not attained to righteousness... They have stumbled. And so, as he says, I will call them my people, that's the Gentiles, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. Even though God has turned, as it were, to, to another woman, yet God, uh, Paul says, please God, all the same, please save Israel. So that's an example, as I see it, of God saying, like, in 40 days Nineveh shall be destroyed, but... Although there's no, you know, clause written in there where God says, yeah, but if you repent, that's okay. No, it's not. It said, in 40 days, Nineveh will not be. It will be destroyed. And yet, God was open to human repentance, just as God is open to prayer. And so, that's how it can be with with all manner of issues in our lives. But it seems God has made a decision. Maybe illness, death even. And yet, God is open to our prayers, to our putting our point of view. And it's even so in the case of the salvation of others, that due to our prayer, there is a possibility that somebody might be saved who otherwise would not be saved. Now, if that is so, we just read it is so, seeing that that is so, what does that imply for us in terms of prayer? No wonder Paul is writing every single letter he writes, I pray for you people all the time. I mean, prayer was then his way of, of life and being. And of course the question is, is that how it is for us? Or are we just dashing off the same old words quickly before food, uh, uh, now and again, uh, praying for something specific? Or do we really get the whole spirit of Paul here where he says, that this prayer is in his heart. Sorrow fills his heart for Israel. Prayer fills his heart for Israel. Do we feel that sense of sorrow for the lost? Or are we arrogantly shrugging our shoulders and saying, well, that's their choice, they chose not to have it. Tough. No. I mean, where is the sorrow of God and of the Lord Jesus and of Paul in our hearts? It should be there. And if we're living a life that has that burden for the lost... We won't be passive. We, by all means, will try to reach out and not just live our selfish existence, but we'll try to reach out to others. Because if you're praying for something all the time, you're reaching out to those people. And and I think, again, Paul does this. 
he's the apostle to the Gentiles and yet he goes to the Jews. He's kind of not supposed to do that. That was Peter's job. But all the same, this burden that Paul had for his people came out so, so powerfully. And, of course, God ultimately was going to hear that prayer, not in the sense that literally all of the people that Paul prayed for were going to be saved. But he goes on in chapters 10 and 11 to explain how he feels that prayer will be answered. And he talks about how the definition of Israel has been somewhat changed. He said in chapter 9 that they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And he talks about a remnant, how some of Israel will be saved and how Gentiles will become Israel, will become grafted into the vine. And so he, he concludes in, in uh, 11 verse 26, and so when Jesus comes back, and so all Israel will be saved. He said in chapter 10 verse 1, my prayer to God is that Israel might be saved. Then he explains his uh, theology, 11:26, and so all Israel shall be saved. But I think that his idea was that he is praying to God that Israel, even in his day, would repent and would be saved. And yet he, he says, well, you know, the way it could work out is that a remnant of the natural Jews will, will, will repent, uh, as clearly foretold there, and he quotes there the, the case of the 7,000 at the time of Elijah, and Gentiles will be grafted into Israel, become the true Israel of God. Jesus will come back and save the faithful amongst Israel and, and the Gentiles. And so all God's true Israel will be saved. So then we can pray for something and yet the answer may not come as we quite would like it to come, as we expect at the time, and yet ultimately it will come. So then he pleads with his people. Chapter 10, verse 10, he says that with the heart man believes unto righteousness. And what he means by that in the context of Romans is that if we believe, then God will count us as if we are righteous. Jeremiah talks about the Lord, our righteousness. How does Yahweh become our righteousness? The word Yahweh uh, is the, the name of God, and when God declared that name to Moses, he says, I am a God full of grace, of mercy, of truth, of, of justice, forgiving iniquity, and yet punishing the guilty, etc. So then the name of God is essentially his characteristics, his personality. And we are saved by being baptized into that name and abiding in that name. And that means that all those characteristics of God as they were particularly revealed in the Lord Jesus, are counted to us. We are clothed with Christ. He sees us as if we are as righteous as his dear son. And so he says in verse 11, because the scripture says, whoever believes in him shall not be ashamed. And he's talking, I think, about the final day of judgment. Jude ends his letter with some wonderful words, and he, he says there at the end that, Ultimately, when the Lord Jesus comes back, we will be presented faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. We shall be faultless before the presence of God's glory with exceeding joy. How can you and I be faultless? 
Paul has the same idea elsewhere when he says that we will be presented unblameable and irreproachable in his sight, in his eyes. How can it be that you and I, with all our burden of sin and dysfunction and failure, and not only failure in, the, in terms of like committed sin, but the things we omit to do, how can we have the hope of being presented irreproachable, unblameable, faultless before the presence of his glory? I, you, little guy, here on earth. How? It can only be through belief, as he says, in this righteousness of God being imputed to us. And that then is our hope. That is the the core of the gospel that Paul is here preaching. That by belief in the Lord Jesus and by baptism into him, his righteousness is counted to us. And in verse 15, Romans 10, 15, he brings out this idea of being in Christ and how everything that was true of Jesus now becomes true of us. He says this, he's talking about preaching this gospel, and he says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them, and you may like to put a box or a circle around the word them, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good. He's quoting there from Nahum 1.15. Nahum 1.15. But he's changed the quotation. Nahum 1.15 says, how beautiful are the feet of him, singular, who preaches the gospel of peace and brings glad tidings. And yet Paul changes that and says, how beautiful are the feet of them. In other words, he sees the prophecy about Jesus personally as true of all of us who are in Christ, particularly in this context, in terms of our preaching. He has no other face in this earth apart from ours, no other hands or legs apart from ours. We are the body of Christ to this world. And so 13, Romans 10, 13, whoever calls upon himself the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes, it is a reference to baptism into the name, but it is also, I think, a reference to the ongoing sense in which we call upon ourselves his name. Now, these things are absolutely, absolutely marvelous, are they not? That we shall not be ashamed that we shall be faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy in that day. Why? Because you and I believe in the, the good news of his righteousness being counted to us. With the heart, man believes unto righteousness. That was Romans 10 verse 10. So then, we are in Christ. Right now, if you're baptized into the Lord Jesus, if you're abiding in him, you are covered with his righteousness. And therefore, we should even now, if we believe that, and we should believe it, because this is true, we should be able to have something of that exceeding joy because of how he looks at us. Thank you.